0: Whenever or wherever in the world you're tuning in from, my name is David Nash and together we're celebrating 10 years of UNFD, a cornerstone of Australia's heavy music scene by diving deep into the stories behind just some of the records that made the label what it is today. In case you haven't gotten amongst it, throughout 2021, the legends at UNFD have been re-releasing some of the classic records from their back catalogue on limited edition collector's vinyl. So far, the collection has given us classic albums and EPs from local legends like In Heart's Wake, Hellions, Dream on Dreamer, Thornhill and Ocean Grove, as well as international icons like Stray from the Path and Dream State. As you'll know from last week's episode, the next installment comes courtesy of the band that had such a powerful and impactful influence on the Australian metalcore scene that some would consider them to be the forefathers of what we know today as the scene, I Killed the Prom Queen. Their reissue of the 2006 classic music for the recently deceased is out now. And if you haven't already sussed out the first part of our interview about it, definitely go and do that right now. Even if you think you know everything there is to know about this album, I guarantee you are bound to learn something new. At this point in the story, Michael Crafter has just been fired from Prom Queen and with just months to go before the album's release, the band set to re-record the entirety of the vocals with his replacement Ed Butcher. There's no doubt about it, Prom Queen were well and truly flying by the seat of their pants. lot of things tended to for them. The ambitious plan to get album number two out by the end of 2006 not only paid off but brought even new heights to their surging popularity music for the recently deceased officially hit shelves on november 14 2006 and shot straight to the top 30 on the aria charts that was a pretty wild feat for an australian metal band at the peak of the 2000s indie rock boom but that wasn't what the band considered to be successful for the band themselves, the best way to see how successful LP2 was, was to take it out on the road. And my God, did they take it out on the road? The launch tour for this album spanned three whole months and a barely a day to rest, with a next raining 55 shows on the itinerary. They played everywhere from Hobart to Mackay, shredding up a storm with their face-melting breakdowns in theatres, pubs, skate parks, town halls. Shit, they even played a retirement home in Gympie. This was, hands down, the golden age of I Kill the Prom Queen. And because he'd been kicked to the curb just a few months prior, Crafter wasn't exactly stoked for them. But any semblance of animosity between him and the band fizzles fast, And ultimately, as much as the internet would love to have you believe otherwise, there was no bad blood between Crafter and the rest of the crew. It's not like he had much time to dwell on it all anyway. Pretty much as soon as he left Prom Queen, Crafter got swooped up by the Melbourne-based hardcore kings in Carpathian. During the seven months he lasted with that band, they even ended up opening for Prom Queen. Crafter was out of Carpathian by the end of 2006. But it wasn't long before he was poached by yet another band, the American Titans in Bury Your Dead. And yes, he only lasted a few months there too. But hell hath no fury like Michael Crafter with a microphone in hand. His next project was Confession, which managed to long outlive Prom Queen. The new version of Prom Queen wasn't, on the other hand, wasn't working out too well. Ed couldn't quite live up to the downright chaotic demands that such a role demanded and just a few months after music for The Recently Deceased came out, January 2007 to be exact, he was out of the band too. They cycled through two more singers over the next few months, first Tyrone Ross from Morning Tide, then Colin Jeffs from Heaven's Lost, but eventually decided to throw in the towel altogether. Before they did, of course, Prom Queen would head off on one last tour. One so life-affirmingly hectic that its memories live on even today. They called it the Say Goodbye Tour. And not only did they have Crafter back on vocals, but they had one of the wildest touring lineups in Australian metalcore history. First, we had Bring Me The Horizon, who were just about to put out their landmark second album, Suicide Season. Then we had The Red Shore, playing their very first shows since the devastating bus crash that killed their former singer, Damian Morris. And last but certainly not least, we had the Australian debut of The Ghost Inside, who, well, if you don't know who The Ghost Inside are, pause this podcast, listen to Dear Youth, and get back to us later. Essential listening. Prom Queen's Say Goodbye Tour was the kind of run you can make a Netflix show about. It was a life-changing experience for everyone involved, with both Crafter and Jonah calling it one of their favourite tours of all time. It was also immortalised on CD and DVD with the release of Sleepless Nights and City Lights, which came out that November. So 2008 came to an end and Problem Queen were gone, but certainly not forgotten. The band's popularity only continued to grow as the years went by and Australia's metalcore community grew. In 2011, UNFD, then called We Are Unified, swooped in to release the mythical crafter version of Music for the Recently Deceased. A few songs from the record had made their way out over the years, whether in an old school tour edition of the CD or via the good old gold mines that were the internet forums. But here, for the first time ever, was Music for the Recently Deceased in its full original form. 10 years on, The album still holds a special place in the hearts of everyone in Prom Queen and especially Crafter, believe it or not. (laughs) In the second half of our interview with him and Jonah, we chat about the undying legacy of I Killed the Prom Queen, how they managed to pull off that enormous Say Goodbye tour, and why although they have no plans to reunite again anytime soon, sorry guys, the spirit of Prom Queen will live on for years and years to come. Well, let's jump straight into it. (laughs) What I can say from my perspective is that in that period of time when you did did release that album, I noticed that the fan base for Prom Queen had transformed from loyal to fiercely primal loyal. The Prom Queen fans were no longer loyal. They were fiercely fucking primal loyal, that sort of degree. When you first released it, did you notice a change or a transition within your fan base something similar to what i've just described
1: we did but it took a little while because it was it was sort of like it seems like our records and our successes went in cycles where you know we we dropped that album or we're about to drop the album and we were doing supports again because we still we wanted to get new listeners and new fans and and those support tours were pretty brutal i remember doing um a support opening for exodus and the haunted and to us that was like sick we're on tour with one of the swedish bands that we love and then we got up in front of those crowds and it was all these like traditionalist metalheads that were there for exodus that just saw our hairstyles and our tight jeans and we just we didn't go over well but that was for us that was part of the job you know we had to go there and if we made 10 new fans out of that 700 people great and then we did start to see that when we I forget, I have a really shocking memory, but whichever was the first time we headlined Sydney Manning Bar and it was sold out, that was like, okay, like this is the place we came, as Crafter said, and it was the biggest city in Australia and it had the smallest turnout on our first two or three tours. And now it's the biggest venue and we've sold it out. It's fucking awesome.
0: So the band splits officially, what, a year later? (laughs) Are you able to summarise that time?
1: yeah it it was very disappointing but in hindsight not really that surprising i mean we kind of had we had stars in our eyes with you know bringing in ed ed butcher to join the band and he's this young guy i think he must have been 21 22 at the time flew him in from the uk to another country and i think we were thinking like everything's going great we have all this rad stuff lined up we're giving this this kid an opportunity and like He's helping us in turn and we we've just elevated the band again to another level but we we found it difficult putting ourselves in his shoes where he's just moved to a different country, doesn't know anyone, you know, he's kind of got a few friends, doesn't have any family. We were kind of like again, we still weren't at the point where we were like raking in the cash, you know, I mean, we were sinking every dollar back into the band. And so we kind of were almost like giving him pocket money to just to survive. We were still working odd jobs here and there. So it's not really surprising it went the way it did. Um, I think some of us would have hoped that he would stick it out a little longer because I think you know we were right right on the cusp of something big, um, which was proven when we did that two thousand eight say goodbye tour where we enlisted Crafters' help again. Like that was a pivotal moment in a, I think any of our lives and careers. I I know most of the people on that tour still to this day say that was the best most fun tour they've ever done, and I have to attribute some of that success to the fact that people thought they were never going to see prom queen again and that's completely fair enough um you know it's not maybe we maybe it wouldn't have been that big and that crazy had we never disbanded or whatnot but you know it's who knows it's it's hard to have these what ifs at the time that lineup on that tour was fucking massive like having two international supports one of them being the horizon the, the thing about that time, because at the time when um, Ed left the, the band
2: and stuff, and I don't know if Jonah knew, knew much, talking to Sean and JJ a lot about it because I was like, what's going on and what's going wrong? And they, they obviously they were having their problems and he wanted to go home and whatnot. And then, but at the same time, I got offered a, a, to be in a, a, an American band and Jonah was getting offered to be in Bleeding Through. So if there was any, any time where, like, we were all kind of like – because obviously it wasn't that long a period of time between when, when Ed left and we did a final tour. It was only probably a year, probably, <laughs> probably about a year and a half. And now that, that – at that time it seemed like a fucking long, long period of time. But we were – like, obviously Jonah had this opportunity – and the, the thing that I, the reason why I was touching base with JJ and Sean and stuff at the time because I kind of felt like they were just all without a band now. And I was like, fuck, it was more like, what are you going to do kind of thing? And JJ went, went and did these nuts and Sean ended up doing that as well and stuff. But at the time, it just seemed like there was so much going on between what Jonah was doing, I was doing, what they were going to do next and whatnot. So I feel like the period where we were like, we should do a final tour. Was when, uh, and after all this fucking time, like, and I'm not, like when I was out of prom queen, I felt like it was the biggest fucking falling out ever. But when times got tough for me and I was in America, I called Jonah to come pick me up. <laughs> and he came to the fucking, what was it? Was it the fucking Roxy or uh, uh, with the whiskey, uh, whiskey a go go and picked me up after <laughs> yeah. the show. And I and I went and fucking stayed at fucking Brandon and Marta's house for like a fucking week before I flew home. But that was the thing, is like everyone I kind of probably looking outside from the outside at us. We're probably like, oh, they all hate each other now. But in reality, Joan was the person I was fucking calling when I needed a friend. Like it was it was a fucking weird time. But now it's like it felt like it was fucking years, but it was really only a year and a half where he joined a band, I joined the band, I was out of that band. Then we and and then when I was in the States at that point, we were like, well, maybe we should do a final tour. And that was kind of the first bit of discussion about doing it.
1: Do you have a yeah. highlight for both of you, the say goodbye tour? So for me, that tour is still as as I said earlier, you know, it, it's it sticks out in the memories of a lot of people, a lot of the other guys in the bands on the tour. The three years I spent in Bring Me the Horizon and we were doing crazy big stuff. They all said to me that was still their favorite tour they've ever done. M- might have changed nowadays that they're packing out arenas. But at the time, that was their favorite tour. That was the Ghost Inside's first ever international tour. And they got that gig because I was mates with the singer Vigil. And we needed an opening band. And I didn't know who to put on it. And I went to lunch with him one day and he said, put my band on it. And I'd heard their their first album, which was still kind of like a, not a demo, but you know they hadn't released it yet. And it was really fucking good. And so I was like, yeah, that's a fucking great idea. Like, let's do that. So, so for me personally, the highlight of that tour, honestly, was, was that that that's like one of the coolest things that I've ever done with my career as a musician and beyond, beyond being a musician. I put that tour together myself as Prom Queen has always kind of done most of the things we've done ourselves. We've always been a self-made band, self-managed for the most part self-recorded. And then, you know, we released through labels or through distributors, but essentially we self-released. So we did the same thing with the tour, you know, we didn't want to just have someone come in and rack up 15, 20% commission on all these years and culmination of our successes on this, like the biggest tour we'd ever done. So we built that tour from the ground up. I'm sure I had a lot of help from crafter and from, from other friends and people here and there, But yeah, I was living in Orange County, California at the time and glued to my computer every day for six months, putting this tour together, which is a thing I'd never really done before. And somehow we ended up with this like 23 day in 18 day tour with two international acts, like multiple sold out shows days in a row. And on top of that, just like the most fun shows and fun vibe and fun groups of people and bands that we'd ever combine.
0: Do you think if it flopped, the pulse for Prom Queen would have died at the end of that tour?
1: In my opinion, yeah, possibly. Like,
0: I know it's hard to it answer, was- but I feel like that's possibly what's just kept that alive all these years.
2: Uh, do, do, do you know, from, from my opinion, I feel like that tour, it kind of set the bar so fucking high, anything Prom Queen would ever do after was never going to be as fucking good because – I Even looking back at that, I even when he was putting it together, I was like, this is fucking mind-blowing. Like this tour is, and not only the fact that the, Bring Me with a fucking main support and off this huge, they, they literally were one of the most hyped bands at the time, the Red Shore were making a comeback after the car accident. And that was also, their, their Adelaide show was the first show back and so that was also a big, big deal. It was a big emotional experience. So that first show was not only um, a lot of weight on kind of everyone's shoulders, but it was really emotional because of the simple fact that we've, we'd we lost some friends and we were watching them try and make a comeback from a really bad situation and car accident and Yeah, and and the loss of not only the singer of the band, but one of their crew. And I just remember that Adelaide show just being fucking, like it was like watching them was like literally I was in tears because I was like, fuck, this is hectic, like what these dudes are doing. And the only other time I'd ever felt that kind of emotion um, was when I watched the Architects play their first show yeah, when when was that? Or oh, a couple of years, or whatever when 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 after After Tom had Tom died, died. Played, is that right? Yeah, and they, and they played in Perth. So, and that, I think that then was their first their first show w- without Tom. So, like those kinds of moments are pretty like pivotal in your memory but also really emotional to see. So, I th- I think that that tour, like that that um final tour was literally I don't know how it could have been any better in reality because the shows were wild and every day was a new adventure of fun with all of our mates.
0: What do you think it is 100%. from that say goodbye to a in 2021, we're still talking about prom queen. What do you think it is that has happened in those what 13 years that continues to add to the legacy of prom queen people, you know, what keeps drawing people back? What keeps drawing the two of you back?
2: I think, honestly, for me, I think what it will always, like I I recently got the fucking snakes tattooed on me because after the loss of Sean. And I think just because we have so much childhood history, not just me, me, Jonah and JJ, but Kev was in that band from when he was 16 years old. So we essentially got this little kid into the band and just all those memories are just like, crazy so it's like I don't know sometimes just that that when you think back about I mean after the uh, the, the death of Sean I relived so much stuff I re-watched the DVD I, I, I just to appreciate what I'd got to experience and what was a big chapter of my life and it always it's always going to hold such significance because that was the first real thing I got to do musically where I started to feel some like as a successful musician as, no, this is the best way to put it. I think I actually started to feel like a musician and not just a dickhead in a band.
1: Yeah. I feel that you've
2: played
0: with these highly esteemed bands, as you said, but for reasons, as you've explained, there are things that you are more proud of having done with prom queen. And I'd love to know why.
1: Well, yeah, it's different prom queen from day one, was my band and my project and my best friends um, the other bands I joined obviously I had wild success and an amazing time and you know an elevation of my career things like that but I was you know at that point it was it was my career and so it was I don't want to say it as stale as looking at it like a job but it you know it's it was my income and it was my livelihood and so there was a bit more of a focus on that and I was coming into someone else's uh you know environment and habitat and kind of coexisting with them and and that was that had its own challenges and ups and downs but prom queen was just always our baby you know from day one and we grew with it and we started from nothing and we grew it into what it is and i'm still very close with most of the people in the band including most of the former members and guys that were in it for you know two months six months a year here and there way back in the early days and so i look at it like you know like that for me you know especially now with with sean passing like there's just such a special series of moments to do with that band that i'll associate with forever and then on the flip side you know it's it's kind of weird to talk about the band in this way because it sounds it feels a little egotistical but I, i guess i have to be realistic like this the band is is special to so many people it was you know maybe the first band that got them into heavy music or the first live show they ever went to, or, you know, the first record that helped them get through a tough time in their lives. And and I appreciate that because I have those records from other bands for me too. And so being able to continue to do things in 2021, even if it's, you know, it's not going to be a tour necessarily or a bunch of shows or festivals or anything like that, but just being able to have something to offer to those people as a kind of a thank you, I think is super important to all of us.
0: Are we able to talk about where you both were when you found out about Sean or SK's passing?
2: So I, I spoke to Sean on the fuck of this, with the craziness. I spoke to him on the Thursday just about, we were on the phone for a while, just talking about life and it was off his job and whatnot. And then he messaged me on the Saturday morning to say he caught up with a couple of friends and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll call you during the week kind of thing. And then um, someone called me, I think it was Monday afternoon, and called me and was like, Sean, like, straight up, just Sean's dead. And I was like, what? And then I, I got it. Obviously, was fucking instantly, like, fucking my whole world sank. But then it wasn't until I talked to Kev and I talked to JJ that it really all sunk in, you know? And it, fuck, man, like, when you speak to, like, me, as time gone on, me and Sean um, honestly grew closer than we ever were when we are in a band together. Um so when I did did hear I kind of and as fucked as this is, I kind of expected it to happen eventually because I just knew Sean's ride wasn't going to be forever and I knew his struggles and I knew a lot had been happening in his life. So it was it was fucking hard. But when when I spoke to JJ on the phone and how heartbroken fucking JJ was it just it, it's honestly, it fucking hurts me every day because I don't have that ability just to call him and check on him. And a lot of the time that's what I just, I, I call my mates to check on them and see how they are and stuff, especially when I know they're struggling. And Sean struggled for a long time and it was really, it was just a real hard, hard bunch of years. And yeah, I hope he did find some peace because yeah, it, it would be, it wouldn't be a great thing to be, living this life if you're forever in pain. And obviously was.
1: Jonah? Yeah, unfortunately for me, it, like Sean and I had kind of grown apart a little bit and I don't know that it was necessarily like any specific reason other than, you know, I, I was living in another country and I, I was only able to get back home to Australia, you know, kind of every 18 months or so, which isn't super frequently. And I think the last time I went back there, we tried to connect and, you know, he was doing his thing, I was doing mine, and it just kind of didn't really work out. But we, we still kept in touch, like, fairly occasionally. And so for me, finding out that Sean had died was, um, it was a bit of a weird circumstance because I think I'd had a message from Crafter saying, like, hey, I need to talk to you. And then I had a message from Kev that was sort of something similar. Or Kev's message said something like, oh, I guess you've heard blah 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 and he kind of like went on this bit of a rambling that had no context to me and i was so i wrote both of them back and kev was the first one to get back to me and i think he had assumed that michael had had connected with me and told me the news and it, we hadn't you know the time difference and all that weird stuff and so kev told me via message um And yeah, I don't know, man, I just, I I feel like I almost blanked that day. Like I just remember sitting on the stairs in my house uh, over here in the US and I think I was alone. Maybe my wife was still sleeping and I just started to sob and then, you know, I started getting phone calls flooding from other friends and people checking in and making sure I'd heard the news and
0: yeah, I don't know. Well, what we'll do is we'll go with Crafter first, then to you, Jonah. One thing you'd like someone to know about songs for the recently deceased that they may not know about so they can go and listen to it again and, you know, what that album means to you, something that happened during the time when you were recording it.
2: Okay, this has got nothing to do with the recording, but the night I flew in... I didn't know where the studio was. I couldn't contact anyone because it was literally like we'd have to MySpace each other to contact each other. So I stayed on a fucking boat that was down the road from the studio. It was like the worst hotel I've ever stayed in. All these tiny little rooms and like the only window was a porthole and it cost me some stupid amount of money. And then the next morning I have walked around this fucking area hoping to find them. Because I had no way of contacting anyone, I didn't have the internet. I fucking we didn't have iPhones. So <laughs> it was two thousand five. On, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, the only time you could get on on anything, you get on a fucking computer. And so then I ended up somehow finding them, and that's how I started the recording. I was like completely <laughs> fucking lost. So that's that's probably my best fucking thing. I stayed on this random boat down the road. <laughs>
0: Jonah, something a so, little more to do with the creative and recording process would be much appreciated, please.
1: Well, I got a bit of a twofold, but um, just off the back of Crafter's story, it was the same for the other, the other four of us coming in. Crafter ended up, I think, uh, going off on a little sabbatical for the first few days when we were you know, allowing some time to get acquainted with Gothenburg. And exactly to his point, you know, I think one of us had a, a MacBook at that time and none of us had phones that worked over there or anything like that. And we hadn't we hadn't booked accommodation. We just flew blind, and we were in our you know early mid twenties, and that's just kind of what we did. And we we landed at the airport. Our guitars had gone missing. Um, we got the train to the city. We found the, the nearest shopping mall. We went in there, literally laptop in hand, holding it out, trying to find a free Wi Fi signal. Which back then nowhere had free Wi Fi. You know, you had to pay for it. And we f- somehow found a free Wi-Fi signal, looked up and found there was a youth hostel not too far away. And that's how we spent the first few days of being in Gothenburg. No guitars, not able to start recording. S- yes, same kind of deal, sleeping on bunk beds. But on the recording, and and I don't, this might sound like a bit of a diss to Krafta, so apologies in <laughs> advance, but we were all just figuring it out, man. And like, I remember being really hard on ourselves and like, I had planned things down to like which thickness guitar pick I was going to use and which thickness strings and like all these little fine details. And, you know, we did, we kind of didn't really have a lot of lyrics ready to record. And so we kind of winged it a little bit with crafter in there. And um, I remember struggling a little bit with JJ and Kevin, and I having these ideas on some phrasing for crafters vocals. And we'd kind of tell him how to sing something and he kind of wouldn't quite get it, or he'd, do it like completely different takes each time. And part of that, like saying there till three in the morning that I mentioned earlier was like, I was sitting in there taking crafters vocals, cutting them up like word for word. And even sometimes sounds like cutting the S sound off a word and replacing it with it. And like Frankensteining crafters vocals together (laughs) to where they sounded fucking sick at the end of the day. And anyone that's heard the crafter version can agree with me. But I remember that first day, Frederick coming into the studio, opening the session file, and just going, "What did you do to this? Like, it just—it was chopped and faded and glued yeah, 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 together yeah. somehow." And that's how we made it work, man. Can
2: you know, I can I tell you something that's funny? And to this day, I'll send Dan because me and Dan Brown, like, the, now in Amity, work on like confession stuff here and there, and we stuff around with stuff. I still to this day send him really shitty, out of time fucking parts and somehow he makes it work like (laughs) i'll have these ideas and i'll fucking sing it 57 times and i'll send them all to him and go pick the best one that's the line that's got to be none of them are similar the the 50th phrasing might be the perfect one and he'll go okay i'll just chop it and make it how it will be and it was like i I feel like as as long as it's gone in the studio i should have gotten better but I don't sing along to the click. I don't sing along to the drums. I just hear the guitars in my head and think that's what I've got to follow, which I don't know. It works when you're coming up with a sick line, but yeah. it doesn't work when you're coming up with timing that's fucking good. It works so, if you're in a folk much,
0: band, maybe.
2: Yeah, not much has changed, <laughs> but it's, it's like, and it was like that then and yeah, I've got to record some shit in the next few weeks <laughs> it'll be like that again.
0: Is there an update that you'd like to give Prom Queen fans for 2021 and beyond? Anything at all? Even just a message?
2: I honestly, a while ago, like uh, Jonah and JJ haven't been in in much contact in some time. And I had the um, remix of the fucking uh, When Goodbye Means Forever um, song, which we got sent from from Frederick uh, for this re-release. And I sent it to JJ and all he wrote back was, fuck, we're a good band. And I was like, it was after Sean had died and stuff. And I was like, I knew he was struggling and stuff. So I sent him that. And, and with no thing of what, like, it, it was kind of just like a pick-me-up kind of thing. I didn't even tell him it was remixed or anything. I just sent it to him. And he's like, yeah, fuck, we're a good band. And then I was like, yeah, this is the Frederick remix, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, fuck, it sounds really good. And when, you, when you're fucking down and whatnot, and when we we're all going, like obviously going through the passing of Sean, listening back to that and this new life on that set, like with that Swedish sound, it really made me happy about what not only we'd achieved, but just what we'd actually all done together over the years to as a band like it's 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 crazy to go oh Frederick Nordstrom's now remixing an album we did in fucking 03 or yeah 03. <laughs> as if he hasn't it got like, better things to do yeah it's crazy and then they hear it and you're like fuck it still sounds fucking sick like it still sounds like we can release it now and people are like yep that's sick because it's fucking good songs
0: a final message from you Jonah to Prom Queen fans
1: I can't make any promises for anything really exciting. That's going to blow people's minds at this point. You know, like obviously we've all got pretty established lives. Crafters got successful businesses and family and I'm the same and living over here full-time in the U S now, but I can say that wherever we have an opportunity that is realistic and, you know, is something that we think might be special to, to people or to the band's fans. We'll, We'll do whatever we can to make that happen, and you know, even if that's just a, a simple re-release or a remastered song here and there, or maybe some old merch or something, you know, that's unfortunately that's about all we can offer. But I would I would say that when fans go back and listen to these songs, like you know, do it in a way where we have an appreciation for just how good we had it at that time, and and appreciate Sean Kennedy and the things that he contributed to the band and you know just the love that we all shared and kind of that legacy that we we made together you know that that's what it means for me and so hopefully fans can have that uh, some kind of a sense of appreciation for the love that we put into the art.
0: I'm chatting to Jonah and Crafter from I Killed the Prom Queen we've been discussing them as a band for the last 20 years and also unpacking and dissecting their release songs for the recently deceased Gentlemen, thank you for being part of UNFD, the official podcast, and congratulations on twenty years as a band.
2: Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks
0: for joining me here on UNFD, the official podcast, and to everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. As usual, this episode was written by Matt Doria and produced by Abby Loukey. I'm going to hop away from the mic, but stay tuned for our next episode on Wednesday, December 15th, alongside the next installment in UNFD's 10th anniversary vinyl series. If you reckon you can guess what's coming up next, feel free to hit us up on the socials. We certainly welcome all of your wild conspiracy theories. In the time being, you can grab a copy of the band's new vinyl pressing for music for the recently deceased from 2400 or unfdstore.com, as well as some powerfully beautiful prom queen merchandise. The pressing itself is dedicated to the memory of the man, the myth, and the legend himself, Sean Kennedy. Sean was, without a doubt in the world, one of the greatest blokes that we here at UNFD ever had the privilege of meeting. It goes without saying that Sean is dearly missed. And his incredible legacy will continue to live on well after all of us are gone. I'll catch you all next week. But for now, take care, stay safe, and wash on. Infinite.